please take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 18. We are resuming uh, a series of studies in Exodus that we uh, were in last fall up until December. And uh, Lord willing, for the next several weeks, we'll uh, continue up through Exodus chapter 20. Today we are in Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. Israel is in the wilderness after having come out of Egypt, being tested in various ways uh, as the Lord is uh, teaching them about himself, about his faithfulness, about who they are now as his people, all this culminating toward his meeting with them at Mount Sinai, which we'll look at, of course, in chapters 19 and 20. Uh, but today, looking at chapter 18, verse 1, hear the word of God. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. The thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. 
and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Thanks to the Lord for his word. Let's pray as we begin our study of it. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures and pray that as we study them this morning, uh, that your spirit would be our teacher. Father, we thank you for your word, life-giving word, for its truth, its accuracy, for its power. And Father, we pray for your blessing and your presence as we study your word now together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I uh, read a biography of the uh, wartime prime minister of Britain, Winston Churchill. Now, lest that sound like an overly daunting uh, task, I need to let you know that this biography uh, was only 168 pages long. Yet, even so, it was uh, still, uh, for a book of such length, a fairly comprehensive survey, overview of uh, Churchill's rather full life. Uh, And I commend it to you. Very readable book, very enjoyable. Well, in that book, uh, Johnson describes how Churchill uh, would often, as part of his routine, of course, being very much a night owl, uh, would spend most of his morning in bed where he would be telephoning others, dictating, receiving visitors, And right after that, Johnson related an incident, a personal uh, anecdote of his own interaction with Winston Churchill, met Churchill himself in October of 1946, after the war, of course, had ended, when he, uh, that is uh, Paul Johnson, the historian, was 17 years of age. I had, he said, the good fortune to ask him a question. Mr. Churchill, sir, to what do you attribute attribute your success in life? Without pause or hesitation, he replied, conservation of energy. Never stand up when you can sit down. And never sit down when you can lie down. And he then got into his limo. Conservation of energy. That's a lesson that uh, Moses himself needed to learn if he was going to succeed in the ever-growing task of uh, of leading Israel. And this chapter uh, 18 here in Exodus is, is really about growing pains uh, in large measure, uh, about the structure of Israel as a nation, uh, as well as, in a sense, a church. It was both the people of God and how they would grow and develop. It's something of an unusual chapter. If we read it, maybe you noticed that uh, Exodus is very much a book about God speaking from the very beginning where 
God calls Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and tells Moses what he and Aaron are to go and tell Pharaoh and what God is doing to Pharaoh, what God is doing to Egypt, what God is telling Moses and Aaron to go and do, what he's telling Israel to do in the Passover. Exodus is very much a book where God is the one speaking. God is the one giving instructions, except chapter 18. Uh, God is there. It's not quite like the book of Esther, where God doesn't even appear, where he doesn't, he's not even mentioned. Uh, and yet he's, he's permeating the story. His providence is obviously very much at work through the book of Esther, but it's more in a behind the scenes kind of way, which frankly is very, is pretty much how we experience God's providence. God speaks to us through his word. But uh, God's providence is in many ways uh, where he's behind the scenes and yet directing, overruling his providence, as we confessed earlier in the confession, uh, governing all his creatures and all their actions. Well, here in chapter 18, the Lord is mentioned, uh, he's referred to, but he himself is not speaking. And in fact, this development for Israel that led to its judicial system uh, came not from the mouth of God, but from the uh, counsel of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Now, obviously, the Lord is ultimately behind that, but it is an unusual chapter in the book of Exodus for that reason. Uh, now, as we look at this chapter, uh, a couple of things stand out. It really falls into two parts, uh, breaks into two halves. first part is simply a recognition of God's faithfulness. It almost is as though you sort of take a time out here from the progress of the history. They're, they're, they're traveling through the wilderness. They're meeting God at Mount Sinai and sort of stop and take time to reflect on what God has done, a recognition of God's faithfulness. You see this in the family reunion that takes place in the first six verses. Uh, Jethro, of course, we have not encountered since earlier in the book uh, in Exodus when Moses spent 40 years there with Jethro in the Midianite wilderness tending his sheep before the Lord called him to go back to Egypt to lead Israel out of Egypt. He was there for 40 years with Jethro. But we don't hear anything about Jethro until now when Jethro hears of all that God had done for Moses and Israel, how he brought them out. And so Jethro, along with Moses' wife, Sephora, his daughter, uh, and grand, two grandsons, uh, travel to meet up with Moses uh, and Israel where they are. Uh, there's, it's not stated when Moses sent Zipporah and his two sons home. Um, could speculate any number of places where that might have occurred, presumably for their safety with everything going on uh, in Egypt or in the wilderness. But at some point, Moses' wife and children had gone to stay with her father, Jethro. Well, they return, and they are reunited. Uh, and, and, and where we've been studying things on almost a national level, whether it's Egypt or Israel, it is fascinating to kind of see this very personal reunion of Moses with his father-in-law, with his grandchildren, and with his certainly with his wife. Uh, children are named Gershom and Eleazar. The, the reasons for those names are given. Uh, because those Hebrew names sound like uh, the description that's given. Gershom sounds like alien or sojourner, the, the Hebrew word for that, and so on. And uh, so Jethro, this is verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife, where they're encamped. Since sends words to Moses, I'm on the way, come to meet you there. Uh, 
Today we might send a text. Jethro sent a message, uh, sent that message on ahead. I presume not in an electronic text, but some sort of message he sent ahead just to let Moses know they were on their way. And so Moses is out to greet them. Uh, verse 7, he's out, uh, runs out, meets them, he bows down. Uh, see, very traditional and yet very sincere relationships. Moses honoring his father-in-law. Uh, and yet there's a, a sincere greeting, kisses him, uh, and they seem very eager to uh, to get together and catch up, talk about all that's been going on. And so you see God's faithfulness in bringing Moses' family back together on a personal level, first of all, but then you also see God's faithfulness echoed in Moses' testimony and what Moses says here as they go to catch up. In verse 7 uh, through 9, uh, verse 8 says, Moses told his father-in-law what? Well, he talked to him about all the Lord had done to Pharaoh. All he had done to Egypt, all he had done for Israel. The hardship, yes, that had come upon them in the wilderness, but also God's faithfulness in delivering them. Their need for water, their need for food, uh, and times when they, uh, I don't know if Moses mentioned how the people grumbled and how difficult they could be toward Moses. It doesn't say that, but he does mention the hardships that had come upon them, yet the Lord's faithfulness in those hardships. And not only in Moses' testimony is God's faithfulness acknowledged, but in Jethro's praise. You see Jethro's response, a sincere gladness. Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good the Lord had done uh, to Israel, had delivered them. And then it gives his, his words. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. You'll notice the small capital letters there, which indicate not the uh, sort of generic word for God, which would be Elohim, but the covenant name for God that the Lord gave to Moses out of the burning bush. Yahweh, I am who I am, uh, he said, has sent you to, to Egypt to deliver Israel. That's his covenant name. Well, that's the name that Jethro uses here. Blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord, those small cap letters make that distinction, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they, that is Egypt, dealt arrogantly with the people. Now remember, Jethro was priest of Midian, pagan people. Uh, we don't know how much Jethro knew of the Lord, but he certainly gives glory to the Lord here for this magnificent act of deliverance, of salvation, bringing one nation out of another, Israel out of Egypt, acknowledges that the Lord is greater than all gods, that he is supreme, and acting on that, verse 12, offers up a burnt offering and sacrifices. Aaron and all the elders of Israel came to, uh, to join him, to eat bread with him, and give thanks to God for him. So the first part of this chapter is, is really just a sort of a, a chance to stop, to reflect on what the Lord has done, uh, to give glory to the Lord for what he's done, to give worship to the Lord for what he has done. So it sort of just serves as a, as a pause, hit the pause button, stop the action for a minute, kind of reflect on what's been going on. So recognition of God's faithfulness. But then it quickly develops into a recognition of God's gifts. Recognition of God's gifts. Uh, as this goes along, as, as Jethro spends time there and kind of sees what Moses is, is doing, verse 13 the next day Moses sat to judge the people. The people stood around Moses all day, morning to evening. And when Jethro sees this, verse 14, it's almost humorous. What are you doing? What is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Now, Moses was an intelligent man. 
Sometimes it takes the eyes of an outsider to see the situation and to notice what we on the inside might miss ourselves. No doubt this situation developed somewhat gradually, uh, but had come to the point where Moses finds pretty much all day, every day, taken up with the nitty-gritty details of administration, of justice, of conflict resolution, uh, and, and Jethro immediately, day one, identifies this as a huge problem. And maybe Moses was recognizing that, maybe not, maybe he'd become so accustomed to it. But Jethro immediately spots this as, as, as not being a good situation. There is this problem. Moses is trying to do it all himself. Notice what he says. Verse 15, Moses answers, because the people come to me to inquire of God. They have a dispute, they come to me. I decide between one person and another, make them those statutes of God's laws. Moses is basically saying, I have to do it. People need me. They come to me. Uh, this is just how it is. This is how it has happened. The people have these needs. They come to me. And notice what Jethro wisely says in verse 17. What you are doing is not good. And I don't know if there's a conscious echoing of, uh, of Genesis 1. Uh, but certainly I think it, it follows the same theme of, of a situation where that's, well, not necessarily sinful, is also not desirable. Remember Genesis 1, God created this, created that. It was evening, it was morning the first day. God saw that it was very good. God saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw it was very good. And then it says the Lord uh, said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him, fit for him. So God is, is looking at his perfect creation. This is before sin has entered in. And he says that there's a situation that's not good. That's not sinful, but it's also not optimal. It's not desirable that Adam should be alone in, in the creation. And so God uh, creates a wife, makes Eve for him. Well, here again, you almost have that echo. Jethro sees this situation, in many ways, an exciting situation, a good situation, a new situation. Here's Israel. They're out. They're coming through the wilderness. They're about to meet with God or possibly have already met with God at Sinai. Someplace the timing of this event after their meeting with God at Sinai, even though it's recorded in Exodus, placed here before Sinai, maybe to kind of get it out of the way before that climactic moment. Uh, but either way, there is the, this this uh, good situation overall, and yet Jethro immediately sees that Moses is trying to do it all himself, and that is not good. It's not good for Moses. It's not good for the people. So that's the problem. However it's developed, Moses is doing it all himself. Solution, Jethro says, is to use, to employ the gifts of others. Surely they're in a, in, a, in a group of people as big as Israel was. There are other people who have gifts of discernment, gifts of administration, gifts for conflict resolution, uh, and so forth. And so that's his counsel. Verse 19, obey my voice. I'm going to give you some advice, son-in-law. God be with you, which basically means you know, uh, I think it's good advice, but uh, how you deal with it will be between you and God. Uh, God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, bring their cases to God. You shall warn them uh, about the statutes and the laws, make them know the way they must walk and what they must do. 
Jethro is not saying, Moses, you need to step aside. You need to get out of the way. He's saying, you continue as the leader. You are still the leader of Israel. No one can take your place in that way. But he's basically saying, you need to take a bigger picture view. Big picture view of what's going on so that you don't get sunk in all of the details of administering this vast group of people. He still represents them before God. He brings their cases to God. Still is to warn them God's law, teach them how they are to live. You see Moses fulfilling that, by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy, which Mike read earlier. Deuteronomy was uh, basically a series of sermons that Moses gave to Israel uh, a long time later, 40 years after this, when they were, after they finished wandering in the wilderness and were about to go into the promised land. That's what Moses is doing. Remember, he warns them of God's law, implores them to be obedient to the covenant they have with God. He's doing that. Well, that's what Jethro basically says. You're still the leader, still need to engage in these bigger picture tasks. However, extend your leadership through others who have gifts in that way. Notice verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy, hate a bribe, place such men over the people, She's of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. In other words, this, this structured division of labor, a chain of command, so to speak, uh, is what Jethro is advising. Now, not just anyone will do. Look at the characteristics that Jethro suggests he look for. Number one, look for able men. Look for those who are capable, those who have demonstrated ability in these sorts of things. Uh, importantly, men who fear God. Now, Israel is still pretty young, having just come out of Egypt uh, not too long before this, and we've seen in, in their response to situations, some of them were very quick to grumble, to complain, to doubt Moses, even to doubt the Lord. But there were those among them, too, who feared God, who knew the Lord, whose lives demonstrated uh, that, that fear of God, not terror, but that sense of reverence and, and worship and awe of God. It characterizes their lives, men who fear God. Another quality they should have, that they should be trustworthy men, men you can count on, men who are dependable. Another one, he says, they uh, also hate a bribe. In other words, they should be men of integrity, men who can't be bought. Many of these men would be responsible for rendering justice, and they would need to be impartial. They would need to be men of integrity. You cannot be swayed by partiality or bought with a bought with a bribe, but who would administer rightly, who would judge justly, and so on. So these are some of the qualities that Jethro says that these men should have. Uh, that they should Moses should extend his leadership through the gifts of others. In verse twenty two, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they can bring to you, the smaller ones they can certainly decide for themselves. Which sort of sets up a system of appeals on the one hand. Maybe uh, if there's a a decision rendered on a lower level, it could be appealed up to Moses. Or if someone on a lower level just said, this is is above my pay grade, just send it on up to, to Moses himself. Which would greatly reduce Moses' workload in handling these kinds of things. So Jethro says, it'll be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure. And all those people will go to their place in peace. It'll get done. You know, how many people had to go home at the end of the day having having waited in line all day to see Moses 
And finally, Moses just has to, to go home, and there are those who get turned away. I haven't seen Moses. Well, Jethro says these, these people will go to their place in peace and go home, having been heard, having had their situations addressed. And so the needs were met. Moses does that. He listened to the voice of his father-in-law wisely, did what he had said, and it just reiterates. He chose able men, uh, put them at various levels, they judge the people at all times, hard cases brought to Moses, small matters they judge for themselves, and then Jethro leaves in verse 27. Well, what do you want to make of this? What, what does this teach us? Well, on a, on a certainly historical level, it teaches us about the development of Israel, the, the, the rudimentary beginnings of its legal system and its structure as a, a nation in the Old Testament, But we also need to see it in a little bit bigger terms and recognize that the very same things Moses is dealing with here, the church dealt with, the New Testament, New Covenant Church and the New Testament dealt with in their time, and we do as well. In fact, uh, the New Testament reading we had earlier from the book of Acts is addressing a situation uh, that is in a similar vein, where the workload was so increasing that it was beginning to, uh, to falter. It was just getting to be too much. Uh, the situation where the, uh, the Greek or Hellenist widows were complaining against the Hebrews because they felt like their widows were being neglected when uh, food was distributed. And it was not so much, we would assume, through malice or intention, uh, as it was just the task had grown so large because that's the reaction in verse 2. The twelve disciples, the apostles, summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right, we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Um, this, the, the, the task of preaching the gospel was an important one. The, the mercy ministry that was taking place was important. But the twelve and these other disciples had reached a point where they couldn't continue to try to do both because both were going to suffer. Indeed, already were. Uh, so it's not right for us to give up our primary task, then to turn to this other task, as important as it is. So the answer, verse 3, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of word. In other words, a division of labor, exactly what we saw in uh, Exodus 18. And that's what they did. So they chose uh, these various men. Stephen is described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And we would assume that that would be true of these other men. They set them before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. What is the result? Acts Acts 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even a great many of the priests, the Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. In other words, became believers in Christ, followers of Christ. Because both of the preaching of the word of God, the gospel, the good news of a a savior crucified and risen, but also, no doubt, because they saw the faithfulness and the love that these believers showed in meeting the needs of those who depended on and looked to them for help. And so it furthered the church's witness in the New Testament, just as it furthered the life of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament in this division of labor. Now, Let's see other places in the New Testament. Uh, Think of 1 Corinthians 12. Think of Ephesians. uh, Places where this whole question of gifts uh, is described. 
that each Christian, each follower of Christ, has a spiritual gift or gifts of various kinds that are to be employed in the service of the church. Some are more visible, some are more behind the scenes, uh, some are more hands-on and tangible, others may be more intellectual and abstract, uh, but each believer has a gift to serve in this way so that the work of the church does not rest on any one person. Now, this can take the place through offices, kind of as we saw in Acts 6. Um, you, know, you ask a question, how many pastors does this church have? Well, in one sense, we have two, me and Mike, but in another sense, we have ten, because we have eight ruling elders, who also, as with Mike and I, are elders in the church, although ruling elders were teaching elders, uh, but their responsibility, too, is to shepherd the flock, both through presence and relationship and also through the teaching of the Word of God, whether in a formal or an informal way. Uh, the office of deacon, which arose out of that mercy ministry situation in Acts 6, uh, is also part of the uh, division of labor in the church, caring specifically for material needs of believers or of our building, grounds, and so forth but also in terms of individual gifts given to believers uh, that together make the ministry and the life of the church all the more strong, all the more effective, because no one person is bearing the entire load trying to do it all, and because in the numbers and variety of gifts, our ministry is that much more effective. So I want to end just by thinking about and asking you to think about what is your gift? How do you serve the church. How do you serve the kingdom? Because some of you may serve or may one day serve uh, the Lord and serve his kingdom, not in the walls of this building, but outside in the community somewhere. Some of you already do that or involved in, in spreading the kingdom outside the walls of the church. Others serve within the walls of the church or in connection with the church. How do you know what your spiritual gift is? How do you know what God has equipped you to do? What part of the body of Christ God is calling you to be. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about uh, some are like an eye and others are like the feet and so forth. But we're all part of one body and have an important contribution to make. Well, one way, and perhaps the least effective, but maybe a good place to start, is through surveys. You can take surveys you know, that sort of indicate where your gifts, or at least your interests, might lie and might at least give you some areas to explore. Uh, maybe it would be teaching. You never thought about teaching before, but God may have equipped you both with the ability to grasp his truth and an ability to communicate his truth in a way that would make you a very effective teacher, whether at the level of teaching children or level of teaching young people or adults. Um, that might give you some ideas to think about. Another way is to say, what would I like to do? And maybe try it and see if God blesses it, see if God uses it. There have been people who have started in that way, who were surprised to find that God blessed their efforts remarkably. Uh, another question to ask along those lines might be, what, what are the needs around me that I might be able to meet? And as you start to meet those needs, you may find that God blesses you and uses you in a way that you never would have imagined. So whether in a formal structured sense, like an office of elder or an office of deacon, or in a more informal sense, in terms of whatever spiritual gift it is that God has given you, uh, 
God is at work to use each one of us in one way or another in the life of and the effectiveness of his body. We want to avoid as much as possible the so-called 80-20 rule, you know, where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Uh, to some degree, that, that almost slips into inevitability. Yet we want to resist that. We want as many people involved one way or another in the work and the life of the church. Now, by the description of Winston Churchill that I gave you earlier from Paul Johnson's biography of him, you might be forgiven if you gain the impression that he was a lazy man. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, he often exhibited boundless energy. It's just that he usually conserved it well. Hard work is a virtue. And sometimes working near to the point of exhaustion may be a necessity at times. We just need to make sure uh, with Winston Churchill and at the end of the passage here in Exodus 18 with Moses that our energy is diversified and used as widely as possible and the burden shared with as many as advisable. In other words, the church also, as Israel of old, needs to heed Jethro's wise counsel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage, uh, in some ways an unusual one in Exodus, and yet an informative one, an instructive one. And Father, we pray as a church uh, that certainly the work of this body would not rest on me uh, or on Mike, uh, but we thank you for our elders and our deacons and indeed all of us, Father, who are part of this body and help shoulder the task of bearing witness to Christ and ministering to one another as uh, this congregation, part of your body in the world. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless us, uh, that you would continue uh, to help each one of us to be involved in one way or another in the gospel of Christ, whether here or in the community or around the world. We pray it in Jesus' name, for his glory and for his kingdom. Amen.